Sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. So we're going to continue our series through the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And the title of today's message is, Who is Jesus and where is he going? So who is Jesus and where is he going? And I'll give you the answer up front. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is the Messiah. And where is he going? He is going to the cross to save his people. And we'll see this in this passage, and I'll break it up into four main sections. First, we'll see that Jesus isn't John the Baptist. Second, we'll see how we can stand for the truth. Third, we'll see Jesus' death foreshadowed. And fourth, Jesus is the bread of life. So first, Jesus isn't John the Baptist, starting in Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So before we go into who is Jesus, I want to just briefly go over who is Herod. Herod is called the Tetrarch, and that is someone who is a prince. He's a little bit lower than uh, a king, and he is dependent on Rome for his power and authority. And this Herod, he is actually the son of Herod the Great, who we saw at the beginning of Matthew's book, who Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was an infant. So this is Herod the Great's son, Herod the Tetrarch. And so he hears about the miracles Jesus is doing, and he tries to explain away Jesus' power. He tries to explain away how Jesus is able to heal every kind of disease, how Jesus can cast out demons, and how Jesus can even raise people back to life. Because for Herod, he couldn't fathom, he couldn't accept that Jesus could be the actual Messiah that Jesus is the king to come. Because we've seen other people do this. Last week, we saw people from Jesus' own hometown reject Jesus because they knew that he was a son of a carpenter. They knew he grew up a regular life, that he was a regular person, that they knew his earthly family. They didn't, he didn't come from royalty. This week, we see Herod thought it more likely that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead than Jesus being the Messiah. And as I was studying this passage, I asked myself, where does this kind of thinking come from? Like, why would that be the explanation? Oh, this couldn't be the Messiah. This has to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, I think Herod may have thought Jesus and John uh, were similar. They were both preaching a similar message of repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. And Herod also knew many considered John a prophet of God. So after killing John the Baptist, Herod perhaps felt guilty and somewhat paranoid about possibly killing a prophet of God. And now uh, the thought that the prophet of God was resurrected, he would not be too happy with King Herod. Additionally, this belief of someone coming back to life 
as someone else was a popular superstition in those times. And we'll see in Matthew 16, 14, that others too thought Jesus was John the Baptist. They were confused, to say the least. Because for us, it may sound ridiculous to claim that Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist. But there are many other ways people throughout history and even today try to explain away Jesus. Claiming that Jesus was some, someone other than the Son of God. Claiming that he was something other than the Messiah. Many dismiss Jesus' miracles altogether as fiction. Although when we read the gospel accounts, we see that his contemporaries could not explain his miracles away. We see even his enemies, like the Pharisees and Herod here, they can't explain that he's not doing miracles. They just try to give him another reason why he's doing the miracles. So we can't deny that he did the miracles. Nevertheless, even without these supernatural feats, many claim that Jesus was a mere teacher. He was a good teacher. But even if you take an honest look at the teachings and words of Jesus, that will show that he claims to be more than just a teacher. Just in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen Jesus declare himself to be the final judge on the last day. He is the one who grants people access into his heavenly kingdom. Or as in Matthew seven twenty three, he says, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. He claims himself to be the final judge. And then in Matthew ten thirty two, he says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Jesus did not think himself to be just a teacher. He repeatedly refers to himself as the Son of Man, a title of divinity from Daniel 7.13. Jesus claims to forgive sins in Matthew 9.2, something only God could do. And finally, just a few weeks ago, we read how Jesus claims in Matthew 11.27, he says, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Jesus is not a mere teacher. He did not think himself to be just a teacher. And we also see in Matthew twelve six, Jesus claims that he is greater than the temple of God and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So if Jesus is just a teacher, and this is how he describes himself in the terms of God, then either Jesus is a liar or he's insane to think he's God. Rather, given the eyewitness testimony of his miracles and the reaction of his enemies towards his miracles and teachings, it makes more sense that Jesus is actually God, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is not the resurrected John the Baptist or any other excuses people try to claim. The question for us today is, do you see Jesus for who he is? Do you try to explain away his miracles? Explain away his teachings? And this is the first instance of us hearing about John the Baptist's death. Now Matthew will uh, recount what led up to this tragedy. 
And we'll see how we can learn from John the Baptist here in our second section, standing for the truth. So Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother's his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So here we see John being persecuted and arrested for standing up for the truth. He called out the sin of a political leader, specifically the sin of adultery. And since the marriage was also tied up with the politics of the day, John's proclamation of truth also had negative political ramifications for Herod. Thus, Herod's not too happy with John. Now, how does this apply for us today? If the prophet of God, preparing the way for the Messiah, faced persecution, faced persecution for standing for the truth, we may also face persecution as followers of Jesus, as people who stand for God's truth. Jesus has warned us of this. He's warned us of the possible rejection and persecution for people standing up for him, for people that follow him. Thus, we should be ready for persecution. Just because you are speaking the truth doesn't mean you won't face hardships because of it. Because sometimes I've heard people say, I must not be doing God's will because life got real difficult. We should not judge what we're doing by whether it makes your life easy or it makes your life difficult. Sometimes the right thing will be challenging. Sometimes doing God's will may bring hardship, may bring persecution. Endure. Con continue doing and saying what is right and what is true. And judge what is right and what is true by the word of God. For God is the creator and he speaks truth. And the truth of God is not altered or affected by how it is received by people. In other words, whether people agree with the truth or not, whether people congratulate you for speaking the truth, or if they throw you in prison for speaking the truth, that doesn't change what the truth is. Endure. Speak the truth. Stand up for the truth. This means holding to the truth of scriptures even, in the current, even if the current culture disagrees. Now, I do want to clarify, this is not a justification for being mean, being hateful. And to those who disagree with you, or being mean to those who disagree with you, or disagree with the truth, or even if they're actively in sin. Because if you are to stand for God's truth, that means all of God's truth. Not just the verses that you like, or the verses you can use against someone because you don't like them. Jesus has called us to love our enemies. He has called us to take the plank out of our own eye before getting the splinter out of someone else's. We have been given grace. Let us also give grace to others. Therefore, let our speech and our social media posts be seasoned with grace. While at the same time, not twisting the truth out of fear for man, but let us stand firm on the truth being respectful, and as we stand for the truth, we are in fear of the Lord, rather being in fear of man, even in the midst of persecution. Now we turn to our third section, Jesus' death foreshadowed, Matthew fourteen five. 
Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So we see here further sins by Herod led up to the execution of John. Historically, we know that these parties were extravagant. They involved excessive drinking and sensuous dancing. Likely intoxicated, not thinking clearly, and ruled by the lust of his eyes, Herod sets himself up for further sin by making an open-ended promise with an oath. And to break the oath would be disgraceful and politically bad for him. We read on, verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So given the fact that Herod already wanted to kill John because he called the sin out, he called his sin of adultery out, we saw that in verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John to begin with, but we saw that he feared the people who thought John was a prophet of God. So therefore, when we see it says he regretted it, his regret is likely due to the political problems he faced for killing someone who many of his people regarded as a prophet of God. Thus, he is likely not having an internal unrest over doing wrong, but is fearful of the political outcome. Weighing the two options, do you want to make the people mad or do you want to make the people at your party mad? He chooses to save face with the rich nobles at the party and not go back on his oath and choosing rather to go against the will of the people. And we see in verse 10, So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. Now why does Matthew tell us about John's death? Why does he give us all these details? I think there's three reasons. First, We can learn of John's persistence in the truth, even in the face of persecution, which encourages us to stand in the truth and not fear man, but fear God. Second, we can heed the negative consequences of Herod's sin of adultery, his sin of claiming political power, his sin of drunkenness and lust. We can repent of those things in our lives and see how they are against God's kingdom and how they led him into further and further sin. And then lastly, third, I think this is the main point here. We have seen how the Pharisees reject Jesus, how certain cities reject Jesus, even his hometown rejected him. And now we see not only the rejection of God's prophet, John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, but we see John's death. Jesus has warned his disciples of this consequence that they might die because of the kingdom of God. But this is the first death. And this is not just a, a disciple. But this person, John the Baptist, he baptized our Savior. He baptized Jesus. And John is the person who Jesus says, Matthew eleven eleven. he says, Among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. And then verse 14 
He is the Elijah who is to come. What does that mean? Matthew 3, 3, John is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. So not only in his preaching, but in his death, John prepares the way of the Lord. Because Jesus will ultimately be rejected by his people and also be executed by order of a government official. Thus, John's death foreshadows Jesus' death to come. And in this story, we see Herod's sin exemplified. We see his sin highlighted. And we feel a sense of injustice because John's death was a result of Herod's sin. John was standing up for the truth. He didn't deserve to die and be executed. He was innocent of any crime. And we, could th- we think to ourselves, how could Herod do this to the prophet of God, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah? How could he do this? But at the same time, we must ask ourselves, who are we to cast the first stone? John's death was a result of Herod's sin, but when thinking about Jesus' death, Jesus' death is a result of our sin, of my sin, of your sin, because Jesus died on our behalf. He was bearing our guilt and shame. He took the wrath of God that we deserve, offering forgiveness, cleansing us of all our sins. So while John didn't deserve to be executed, we also know John wasn't perfect. John wasn't sinless, but Jesus was. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, went willingly to the cross, not for his own sin, but to save his people from theirs. And also, as Dr. Quarles points out, while John was mistakenly believed to be risen from the dead, Jesus truly would rise from the dead. But it was now, it was not now time for Jesus to die. He still had more to do and to teach as we go into our fourth section, Jesus, the bread of life, Matthew fourteen thirteen. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus had been fleeing persecution since he was an infant, with his family fleeing to Egypt. And after hearing of John's arrest, he, he, he fled. When the Pharisees plotted to kill him, Jesus fled. Now, after hearing of John's death, he withdrew again. And thus, from the example and the very teachings of Jesus elsewhere, when faced with persecution, it is acceptable to flee, to seek safety, to further the gospel ministry elsewhere. Thus, we must be wise and we also must be willing to take risks for the gospel. Because sometimes there will not be an opportunity for escape, as we saw in the story of John the Baptist. And Jesus continues his ministry in verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. So opposite of Herod, Jesus cared for the people. He showed compassion on the people. Despite going out and being in public, that would be a threat to his own life. Herod might be looking for him. 
Jesus continues to show compassion to the people. We see you here, we serve a God who is overflowing with compassion. Jesus is our shepherd who leads us and guides us. He is our great physician. We go to him with our physical diseases and ultimately our spiritual disease of sin. Jesus will not turn anyone away who comes to him in faith. Jesus continues his compassion in verse 15. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't say, I will give them something to eat, but he leads with, you give them something to eat. He puts this into the disciples' hands. And we, we have seen that Jesus has been teaching his disciples to do what he does. He's training them in his ways. And remember in Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus gave his disciples the authority to cast out demons and the authority to heal diseases. If they could do that by the authority and power of Jesus, could they not also feed the crowds? Do they believe? Do they have faith? Are they going to worry about what they will eat? Or will they trust God to provide? If Jesus says, you give them something to eat, they could have said, okay, let's figure out how to do this, right? Let's see how they respond. Matthew fourteen seventeen. They said, we only have five loaves and two fish here. Jesus says, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. So the disciples didn't get it just yet. And Jesus says, okay, I'll do it. Watch, learn from me, right? And he, he blesses the bread and the fish, and this is likely a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And a typical Jewish prayer for a meal went something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, who is creator of the fish of the sea. He thanked his father. And in the second part of verse 19, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who eight were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now this is the only miracle of Jesus described in all four Gospels, which is an important evidence for the historicity of the Gospel accounts, that this actually happened. And if you're skeptical of the historicity of the Gospels, you have to take this fact into account and not just reject the miracles of Jesus because of your presuppositions. The disciples are still learning. They're still growing in their faith. And Jesus shows them his power once again by being able to feed 5,000 men. That's not counting their wives and children. And he did so with only five loaves and two fish. Thus he multiplied the food so everyone could eat and even have leftovers. And there was so much leftover, there were 12 baskets full. And these baskets here that are mentioned are not just like little picnic baskets. 
This, the term for basket here referred to a basket that a soldier carried, that a soldier could carry to pack enough for three days' supply of food. So this miracle goes beyond Jesus' compassion for the people's physical needs. He does that. He, he, he overflows his compassion, gives them more than enough of food. But as with all his miracles, they point to something about him. And here we definitely see his power in the miracle and his power to provide. But we also see this pointing to him as God and as the Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, God provided bread from heaven called manna for the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness, Exodus 16. And now Jesus, God in the flesh, provides bread for the people in the wilderness. Remember it says they were in the deserted place? There was nothing around there. They had to go back to the city, back to the town to get food. He provides them bread in the wilderness. Just like in the Old Testament when God provided bread from heaven to the people in the wilderness. And enough bread for everyone, enough bread for the 12 tribes of Israel, likely symbolized in the 12 baskets of bread left over. So for us, we must not see Jesus just as a miracle worker, but we must see what his miracles point to. The feeding of the 5,000 points to Jesus being God, being the very bread of life. The book of John makes this clear. John 6, 30. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people ask in verse 30, he says, they say, What sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? As if that he didn't already perform something. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. They saw Jesus. They saw his miracles. They were there on the hillside with their wives, with their children, with their friends, eating this miraculous food that came from five loaves and two fish. But they didn't get it. They thought, this is a great day. You know, we get to have our meal. They, they were focused on the physical reality, and they missed the spiritual reality. They missed what the miracle was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to him as the Messiah, the one who brings salvation, the one who is the very bread of life. For he feels our spiritual hunger. We've seen before in Matthew that we are spiritually broke. We need our debt to be forgiven. We need our sin debt to be forgiven. We have seen how we are spiritually diseased. We need our sins to be healed. And today we see how we are spiritually starving. We need the bread of life. Nothing else can satisfy that spiritual starvation. And for Jesus to give us this life, 
the bread must first be broken. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and take and eat. This is my body. He says this because he's about to go to the cross. And his body be broken for our sins. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can be healed. So that we can be filled. And this Jesus going to the cross, him being the bread of life, and his his body being broken, takes us back again to John the Baptist foreshadowing Jesus' death. His body broken for you. So what does this mean for us today? First, for those skeptical of Jesus, those skeptical of the historicity or the truth of the Bible, I challenge you to read it for yourself. Challenge you to read with a sense of optimism instead of criticism. See Jesus for who he says he is. See the miracles he has done. See his compassion on sinners. And respond in faith and receive forgiveness. Receive eternal life. Receive the spiritual nourishment for your soul. And for those who believe in Jesus, those who have turned to him as their God, Savior, and King, don't be tempted to move past the basics of who Jesus is. Because we never grow out of our need for Jesus. We never grow out of our need for the bread of life. He is our continual nourishment for our soul. In that he provides strength for today and our hope for tomorrow. In the midst of persecution, in the middle of chaos, unforeseen circumstances of life, you need to be ever rooted in Jesus. Ever reminded of God's love for you. Shown in the death of Christ. Be reminded not to try to earn your salvation. You're not the bread of life. Jesus is. You can't sacrifice enough of your life to earn God's acceptance. God accepts you on the basis of Jesus. And out of that, out of Jesus' death and love for you, then that flows obedience. That flows endurance. And by the power of the Spirit, we are to stand firm for the truth. Speak the truth in love, even if no one else does. Will you pray with me? God, help us see Jesus for who he is. Help us continually depend on him for our spiritual nourishment. Help us turn to him for our salvation. Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.